Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Jerry Casale is a true music pioneer whose career spans more than four decades. He's the co-founder of Devo, one of the most unique and original bands in the history of rock music. In the early 70s, Devo was creating new wave music long before other bands. They created a new type of music and stage shows combining science fiction themes, deadpan surrealist humor, and satirical social commentary. In 1980, their rise to stardom rocketed with their platinum hit single, Whip It, and their video became an MTV smash. Devo has sold millions of records worldwide. Jerry is not only a singer, songwriter, record producer, and multi-instrumentalist, he's a successful television and music video director, directing spots for Diet Coke and Honda, and has directed music videos for such iconic bands as Devo, Rush, Soundgarden, and the Foo Fighters. Besides touring, making records, and putting on legendary performances, Jerry has had a passion for food and wine and has become a wine vintner who has launched his own wine label, The 50 by 50. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Jerry Casale. So could you tell us a little bit about your early life? Where are you from? You know, where did you grow up? What's your family life like? Yeah, well, I was born in a hospital in Ravenna, Ohio, and um, my parents were blue-collar Catholics. My dad had just come back from the war. He'd been back like two and a half years or whatever, and he was drafted when he was 18, and he fought on the ground in France and Germany. He landed on the third day of D-Day. Wow. He got a Purple Heart. He survived if you can imagine, that's your teenage experience. And he he was an orphan. He grew up in, in foster homes in New York. So after the war, he came and settled in Ohio looking for work. Didn't know any of his family? No. He partially came to – he heard that his real dad was in Akron, Ohio. They're so he, he was to trying Ohio. to find his real father. And that's how he met my mother was at a, at a dance. She was 18. He was 22. Back from the war, a little seasoned, a little right. uh, rough around the edges then because you came back from a war. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's, I mean, he yeah, has a very sad story. But he, he should have been like a delinquent or, you know, a drug addict. But he was none of those things. He somehow had this constitution that he rose above it all. He was a really, you know, responsible guy. He didn't even drink. And he started having children with my mother. And, of course, when you're Catholic, you're not allowed to practice birth control. (laughs) (laughs) How many kids in your family? Five. Wow. Wow. There would have been seven, but the twins died. So he found out who his real father was when I was four years old. Wow. So he had a a foster name. It wasn't even Casali. So he took his real name back. And I just remember, you know— I have a really photographic memory, and I, I remember meeting, you know, his father, and uh, his father was married to a woman, so that became that was the stepmother, and experiencing this real Italian household, like real Italian, uh-huh. where his wife hardly spoke English, 
and she would just make all these insane amounts of food and pastries <laughs> and pizzellis and banana bread. So your yeah, dad so. was an adult when that happened. You were a child, so he had some life then with his real dad, knew his real dad. But his adoptive parents, were were they your grandparents or was your – Father's father, your grandparent, or was it just a collection of well, everybody? Well, I never, I never met the the people who adopted him because they they lived in New York, and so I only met his real father and then his father's second wife. And I one time met the real mother who was Swedish, and <laughs> I remember it was just a very it was a very frightening, cold woman. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember. Very aloof and cold frightening where the a- Italians were very mm-hmm. oh, oh let's eat <laughs> yeah 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 the whole thing and I have good memories of that I just remember my mother being afraid of them and not understanding the food you know I loved it she wouldn't eat it she was Irish and had grown up with you know overcooked rump roast and mashed potatoes you know brisk uh, uh, corned beef yeah yeah so she came from a family of 11 children. So it was this first generation born here. I yeah. mean, the father was Irish, came to work on the railroads. Same with my father. Uh, his his real father immigrated when he was like four or five to New York from Italy. And so my dad was first generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, very poor and blue collar and believing in the authority of the Catholic Church, which when you're a little kid, None of that comes into play yet as to exactly what's going on. I just remember there was, you know, there was no nonsense. You obeyed your parents. Mm-hmm. We lived in a tiny apartment over a uh, grocery store, and the grocery store was owned by this old Italian guy. And they would send me down with notes, like, here's what we want. And I'd go down and hand him the paper, and he'd give me a bag full of bread and bologna <laughs> and milk. And Where are you in the age order? I was the first. They experimented on me. Yeah. You know. <laughs> So you got the responsibility of those that came after That's you right. As well. Oh yeah. Oh my god, I became the de facto babysitter up until I was probably 15 or Any 16. sisters or just or all boys? No, there was one one sister, Rebecca, and three other brothers. Sounds to me though that it was probably a lot of noise, a lot of activity. Was it fun? Did you have a nice childhood? I think that, yeah, I think my prepubescence was uh, you know, it was mixed, but it was because of the big families, the extended family. The we were always visiting, yeah, right? Cousins. All I had so many cousins. It was insane. <laughs> and, you know, some of them were more well off. So there would be, you know, some nice houses, big backyards, inflatable pools, toys, <laughs> musical instruments. I mean, a lot of a lot of things, a lot of exposure to a lot of fun. Ooh, and you were right in the middle of the baby boom, so there were just a That's lot of right. kids. Period. That's like right. you would go out into the street or into the backyards, and it would just be yeah. automatic playmates and yeah, there were so time. many people around my yeah. age. It was crazy. Yeah. Was there music in your house, or was that something that came through school? You know, or what was the? My dad liked music, and I, I would find out later that he had been. Very musical, and he'd been a drum major before he got drafted, and that he also played trumpet. I didn't know any of this. He'd, it wasn't something he was doing in front of me once I came into the world. 
And uh, he had this radio and one of those huge console radios, floor-based. And I remember distinctly uh, he would turn it to these stations they were playing like a lot of the early kind of like Tex Ritter, you know, Mm -hmm. Ghost Mm -hmm. Riders in the Sky and Louis Prima and all this stuff. And -hmm. I would stand by the radio and holding on to the radio and just be mesmerized and moving to the songs. And just I loved it. And so they realized, oh, that entertained me. So I'd hang out by the radio. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time I was five, they got their first television. So then when there wasn't the radio, there was, you know, the Mickey Mouse Club and Howdy Doody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all that. All, there were only three stations and all the daytime programming was pretty much either soap operas or children's mm-hmm. programming. Akron was – or northern Ohio was an incredible breeding ground of amazing music from Bobby Womack and Joe Lovano. I mean Nine Inch Nails, it goes on and on generationally. Yeah. Were you hearing that on the radio or seeing it on television? Was there local programming that kind of tuned there was, you into There was that? a bit. That came later when I was like in those middle school years. Uh-huh. I fell in love with Elvis Presley. That did it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That did it, seeing Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show and then buying singles. And, of course, all my cousins and second cousins that were the same age as me, we'd get together, you know, in the rec room or the bedroom and put it on the 45 mm-hmm. record player. Did you have a little case that you carried him Oh, yeah, in? the whole thing, yeah. yeah. And all we did is, like, listen to Elvis while the adults played cards, and, you know. <laughs> this was in the 50s, right? Cause oh, you yeah. Because you were born, what, 1948. Yeah. Same year Ronnie was born. And so right. you're now you're like in the late 50s, early 60s. So you the, were at the precipice of what became a giant. I was just the right age uh, yeah, to experience everything and to, and to have your adolescence connected to Elvis Presley and the Beatles because then the Beatles supplanted Elvis. Suddenly Elvis was old hat and this this was the future. This was right. the revolution. Seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan – that's when I just completely went over to that side. Things happened fast. You know, I mean, the culture exploded because you move from the Beatles, then there's the Rolling Stones. Yeah. It's like, okay, the Beatles, that's bubblegum, you know, they're wimpy. Here's sex. Here's danger. Here's the Rolling Stones. And then here's Bob Dylan. Right. Mm-hmm. And now you, I'm becoming political. So like all the kids my age who were turned on by pop culture, there was this – defining moment where you completely separated from your parents because mm-hmm. my parents hated all of this, right? They didn't you – know, they, they were skeptical of Elvis. But then when my dad and mom see the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, that's it. These are religious, blue-collar people. Right. And now this is Satan taking right. over. Mm-hmm. And everybody in your family, all of – because you have three younger brothers and a sister. Right. I would imagine that this permeated your entire household. And right. There was no controlling it at that point. Exactly. Your parents lost <laughs> Right. So there was a complete schism, you know. Yeah. Younger people today would probably take a different point of view. And I'd love to know your thoughts on this, but I believe that that was the greatest time. The music well, that came out of that 25 years. It was all new. Was new and exciting. I mean, listening. Original. To, and it, right. I mean, well, just the new, amount of originality it, it was, year after year. It was new and old because it was borrowing from kinds of music. That, well, certainly some of it. I mean, it was all blues and R&B yes, based. Yes, exactly. As always, white people were stealing from black yeah, people. Yeah. Oh, you know, but you're an innocent kid. You don't realize that. No. You, you just like that. And, of course, growing up in northern Ohio – one of the biggest stations that used to be great was out of Detroit and they played a lot of R&B and they were the ones that started playing Motown music 
you know, so on an AM station, you'd hear Sergeant Barry Sadler, then you'd hear some simpy ballad, then you'd hear the Rolling Stones, then you'd hear James Brown and the Supremes, yeah. all within an hour. Yeah. And just like when there's three networks and everybody was sharing the same information communally at the same time, that's what made the culture revolutionary because everybody might have had an opinion. Everybody might have been at loggerheads, but they weren't locked in their own echo chambers or bubbles because we were all dealing with the same stimuli and the same information at the same time. And it was much more heterogeneous. It was not homogenous. It was a lot of different things all mixed together. Right. It was exciting. And again, it just year after year, things changed so quickly. Can I go back to one thing you talked about? It, there was energy in it too when you talked about Dylan and political. Because, oh my God, Because yes. you went to Kent State. Right. And you're talking about this environment where the parents are sort of rejecting what the kid's like. And then you go to Kent State and something happens. Well, even before that something happens, uh, yeah. so I get in that. trouble in high school for two reasons. I was academically good, okay? I was a smart kid and I had great grades and – we had an English teacher that wanted us to bring our favorite poet in. I walk in with another side of Bob Dylan and play A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and I get sent to the principal's office because I had made a joke of her assignment, mm-hmm. right? And that this was no poet. This guy was some weirdo who couldn't sing and he was complaining. And also I was starting to grow my hair over my collar in the back and touching my ears. So they sent me home for that. And I didn't get to graduate. I didn't get to go to my graduation ceremony because I wouldn't cut my hair. So my parents threatened to throw me out of the house. They said, get your hair cut or get out of the house. So I got out of the house right then in my senior year. I went and hung out with my friend whose parents were more reasonable. They'd given him a little apartment over their shop separate from the house. So I started staying with him even before I went to Kent State. Now you're like 17 when that's gone. Yeah. How did that feel at the time? Like what was the what was the sensation of that for you? Did it feel like damn straight or did it feel yeah. like what the hell? Like what did it feel like? I felt like an alien, not so much alienated because I didn't feel alienated because I was a kind of a, a, a very – analytical, rational person and I was verbal and I had been reading a lot. So I knew exactly why I thought what I thought and I knew exactly why I thought they were wrong and I hated illegitimate authority. I had been, it had been shoved down my throat by the Catholic Church and the priests and my parents were shoving it down my throat and if anything I hated just as an animal, like on a gut physical level was things like do as you're told as long as you're in this house. Or don't question it. This is what God says, right? All those kind of statements about blind obedience to authority just flipped me out. Mm-hmm. And I had already been, you know, exposed to – at that point, I had read 1984 and I had read Brave New World and I had read Animal Farm and even certain kinds of analysis of history and stuff. Yeah. That's I wasn't reading junk. Yeah. Well, books like Slaughterhouse-Five were out in that time period That's right. Too. So it was – there was just this revolution of culture. It was an explosion like a meteor had come in and I only now in my old age look back and, and have any empathy for my parents who were 
you know, again, they were only in their early 30s, right? But they had started to become adults when they were teenagers. They never had a teenage life. They didn't have anything beyond a perfunctory high school education, and they didn't understand what was happening. So I, I can now see how threatening it was and how they could not grasp what the hell was going on when they were just happy to have survived World War II and been able to get a job, right, and a car. Mm-hmm. And now their oldest son is telling them their bullshit. Yeah. Well, it's like Maslow's hierarchy. They went from here and you jumped way, way up. Right. They the didn't even want me to go to college. They wanted me to grow up and get a job. But um, a high school math teacher that took a liking to me and sympathized with my predicament guided me through the uh, SAT process and sent me to Kent State to see a, a counselor there, uh, somebody, a faculty counselor that did curriculums. And I got a work-study scholarship. And that's the only way I got into Kent State University. I got a scholarship through the Honors College there at Kent State. And so, you know, once again, I dodged a bullet. And I was drafted, but it turned out I had a left inguinal hernia and a doctor that had delivered me as a baby that was still our family doctor when there were family doctors that made house calls. Dr. Jacobs, I think he ginned it up and wrote it up as like a bigger thing than it was, and I got a deferment. What was your number? I would have died. Oh, Do you remember your number? Yeah, it was pretty low. It was like less than 100. Okay. And I would have died in Vietnam. I, that wasn't my fate. You but know. you also were your, – your siblings were all close in age to you. Yes. Were they also experiencing the same wonder of the world as it was changing? And were they also having uh, – I don't want to say problems with your parents, but were they – in the in the line of fire with your parents not understanding no, what was going on. <laughs> no, they were watching me take it all and watching me butt heads and talk back and question the church and question these statements and trying to grow my hair and just I think it just kind of scared them. You they know? didn't want to be the recipient of the no right. They were watching it. It's like oh, I'm not getting in that fight. Mm-hmm. Your father also was clearly reminiscent of World War II and it had that experience in the Vietnam War wasn't that much further down the road. And right. That... And of course, in the beginning, he was pro-war. He, you know, his reference to war was a war that was legitimate and had to be won. So he he didn't realize the Vietnam War was a ginned up, made up, imperialistic crusade. He couldn't understand this analysis and criticism of it coming from what he thought were commies, right? Anybody that questioned blind patriotism and loyalty. Right. To what you know, the military Shameful. says and the president mm-hmm. says, right? They're they're troublemakers. So he couldn't believe that I was siding with troublemakers. So it that's the atmosphere that I go to Kent State in, right? And part of me is still a good boy that because academically sleep? I want to excel, yeah, excel. But then what happens at Kent State is just another kind of twist of fate because who would think a university? You know, in this area that's surrounded by televangelists and right-wing sheriffs and, you know, Mm -hmm. farmers and people that, you know, want to shoot hippies, right? Right. There'd be this enclave of very turned-on, aware students. Yeah, an oasis. Like a a couple thousand altogether in this extended group of students, creative, artistic, heavily political. And again, this all mostly came from students from out of state that I became friends with. Uh, Howie Emmer and and Ron Rothstein and uh, many, many others, uh, Patrick Colley and 
they immediately started, you know, feeding me with more information. Here, read this, read that. Here's what's really going on. And one year later, Mark Rudd comes to uh, Kent State University to recruit for SDS. Yeah. And I listened to his speech. I go to the hall where he was talking, and it all made sense. He was very articulate and clear and rational. For our listeners, would you explain just briefly SDS? Like- Students for a Democratic Society, which of course were immediately uh, pigeonholed as uh, you know left-wing commie troublemakers uh, who wanted to bring down capitalism. But really all they were is, again, students questioning the imperialistic kind of uh, uh, duplicity of American policy and the centralization of power that Eisenhower uh, warned everybody about with the – he talked about the military-industrial complex that was forming, that was taking away freedom and autonomy from a democratic society. And we saw it happening then. It was clear by what was going on that power was ceding from the people to the central government who were you know, eating away at the Constitution and First Amendment rights. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Because <laughs> the fight never stops. You're always yeah. at square one. We can end when we eventually end with that loop because you're right back where you always start from nothing changes. No, it doesn't. So now we're here. We're in school. You're a freshman. So you're 18 maybe. Well, yeah. Uh, by, by the time Mark Rudd comes, I'm, I'm a sophomore. You're a sophomore. And I was slated to go to Chicago, 1968 convention, to protest with a lot of the kids that left from Kent to go do that. And um, I got some kind of dental thing that was really serious, like a, an impaction, whatever. Uh, I had to get a root canal and all this, and I was I was out of commission. I couldn't go. So I watched it on TV, and I was kind of glad I didn't go. <laughs> uh, I might have been one of those people getting beat by— Can you talk a little bit about that moment in time? Because I don't think that most people will have recollection of it. And it, I know a little bit about it because Ronnie told me I was too young, but I'd love you to expand on that. Well, you know, we had Richard Nixon, and we were going to have Bobby Kennedy as the Democratic candidate, but he gets assassinated in Los Angeles in June at the Ambassador Hotel. Horrible. Yeah. Unbelievable, right? Five years after his brother JFK gets assassinated in Dallas. And um, at the same year as Martin Luther King gets assassinated, I'm watching the whole world come apart at the seams. Like there's a civil war going on in America. Again, just like today, you couldn't get more partisan and people more at each other's throats hating each other than this period. And what Bobby Kennedy was going to do was try to end the Vietnam War once and for all. And that's what he was campaigning on. And he, all the youth had high hope for Bobby Kennedy. He gets assassinated. And the Democratic Party, the DNC, sticks in Hubert Humphrey, who was a, just a terrible candidate and, you know, a kind of a co-opted idiot, you know, uh, neither here nor there. Right. And so it all, the convention's going to go on in Chicago. And Mayor Daley, who was a right-wing thug, that talked a lot like Trump, uh, empowered the – he basically militarized the police force. He gave them a lot of shields and, and clubs and armored vehicles and um, – Against American citizens. Against yeah. American citizens because he was itching for a fight. He wanted to Blow start up. clubbing 
students, especially activists, anti-war activists. He, he hated them. And, of course, the student activists played right into the hands of these right-wing thugs. And the predictable went down and so violent, so hideous. So many people were beat up, put in jail in vans and, and dragged or you know, when dragged you see to jail. the photos of that, it was shocking. Yeah. And so just everything was just ratcheting up. It just felt like something big and horrible was going to happen. And certainly a year and a half later, it does. <laughs> right. I mean, like what I have never really understood is how the National Guard was there. Deployed? So, deployed and they're so fast in northern Ohio. I mean, I guess it's yeah. a testament to how prepared the, you know, quasi-military well, was at the time. But again, you know, because it was a student body and a youth movement that was educated about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, knew about the significance of what the government was doing and the, and the hypocrisy and the duplicity, they were gaining steam and, and moving everything to a confrontational head. And the other side was, yeah, bring it on. We're going to kill you. So what happened in, uh, in 1970 was simple. It was Nixon goes into Cambodia without an act of Congress. He expands the Vietnam War, an abuse of executive power. This is exactly what the students had been talking about. So as soon as he does that, we start organizing to have a huge demonstration on campus that next Monday because he does it on a weekend, typical yeah. tactic. And what happens right away is that uh, the kind of like biker, thug, local greaser contingent, the townies, right, who hate the students, start hanging out downtown where, you know, all we would all go every weekend because there were Walter's Bar and JB's and the Cove and you know this is where all the local bands played this is where Joe Walsh got famous yeah. playing and we'd go hear Joe Walsh and his band play yeah. and uh, the Raspberries from Cleveland yeah. and the James Gang was his band the Glass right? Harp yeah. James Gang the Glass yeah. Harp tremendous music i mean just tremendous i mean i saw Stevie Winwood there with yeah. Traffic yeah you know what a time huh i know exactly so fights broke yeah. out in town cuz yeah. they were looking for fights and the cops came, the sheriff came, uh, there were, you know, tear gas, cops everywhere, town was shut down, students were sent home. And right then, Governor Rhodes, who again, he was a, you know, a big Nixon fan and a very right-wing uh, governor, called the National Guard in. And what they did is they, they set up several places in town, including the heating plant on campus and the gymnasium waiting for this confrontation like on Monday, almost. right? Yeah. And so just before it was – they everybody knew that students didn't like have some clandestine plan. It was like, OK, at noon on Monday, we're going to you know gather on the commons and we're going to protest this expansion of the war. Well, Rhodes conspired with uh, the, the dean, the dean of Kent State University, to declare martial law on campus. And martial law is a tactic they can always use – and that suspends First Amendment rights to assembly. So once they did that, that's the first thing they announced on the bullhorns. Is martial law had been declared. You have no right to assemble. Disperse now, right? Well, what do you think the students on a spring day, the first time we saw buds on the trees and the sun was out, you could take your jacket off. Think the students are going to go, okay, we're going home. <laughs> no. Yeah. Everybody goes, you know, we don't want your fucking war and all the dumb chants that were going on. And – of course, they were ready. This is what they wanted. So they suddenly flanks of National Guardsmen show up. The armored jeeps pull in. They surround us. You know, it's like a wagon train. <laughs> and they make a few more announcements and start shooting tear gas at everybody. 
and the only route of escape was up over the hill, up over this from the commons that everybody joined on, up over that hill by the journalism building and on your way to several dormitories and a student-teacher parking lot where if you got to that parking lot, you could get off at campus. Well, as we got over the hill, more people yeah, came. Uh, more National Like, Guards. you know, the 300 Spartans. Uh, here comes another group of National Guard. They block that. Now you're trapped. Now you're standing at the bottom of the other side of the hill. They show up at the top of the hill. We're all watching them. We don't know what they're going to do, and we can't figure out why they're, they stopped and why they're not chasing us anymore. And they line up. And some of them kneel and some of them stand behind. And they're all wearing gas masks at this point. And they have M1 rifles. And I see one of the commanders, the adjutant general, like screaming things. We can't really hear what he's saying, but he makes a big hand gesture. And they all shoot straight down into the crowd. I mean, I'm standing there. Live live And live ammo. This was a different game. Nobody had ever had live ammo. Nobody was warned about live ammo. They were shooting. I mean, those are military Grade. casings. Yeah, M1. Ammo. And uh, luckily, I was closer to them. All the students who were killed or injured were behind me. And my theory is that because the guard was the same age as us, they were facing down their own peer group, right? And I don't think they had the guts in them to just shoot somebody like a duck shoot that they could identify their face I think they shot a little high, just like we're going to scare them, mm-hmm. right? And so the people that were closer were spared. And in that moment, you know, it's like Scorsese's Raging Bull or all the, or these films that go into slow motion with white noise soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. You you go into shock because you're not comprehending yet what happened. It's it's so hideous, it's unbelievable because real violence, when you see it, you see the effects of real bullets that go through bodies and the exit wounds, huge. And there's a moment, the freeze frame, and then the screaming. You hear girls screaming. Mm-hmm. And I turn around and I saw Jeffrey Miller, who I knew. I had admitted him to the Honors College because part of my work-study scholarship was every summer I had to spend all summer on campus developing curriculums for the incoming students and then walking them through registration. Well, Jeffrey Miller was one of those students. And he's he's laying on his belly, but you see this bright red blood in the noonday sun running down the access road to the parking lot and goes to the other way to the gymnasium. And then you hear more screaming. You're like, you can't process what you're looking at. And then Allison Krauss, who also was a student I admitted to the Honors College, is laying in the student teacher parking lot with a bunch of people around her. And it took the ambulances so long to get there. Everybody was dead by the time the ambulances got there. And so the four four were killed, and the other two that were killed weren't even participating in the protest. They had come out on the um, – there was a balcony on the uh, journalism building because of how it was built on this plinth where, you know, people could smoke and, you know, eat between classes. They had come out to see what the hell was going on. So they got shot up on the balcony on the plinth and – that shows you how errant the bullets were. And then, you know, nine people were wounded. Uh, two of them were paralyzed because they were running, right, yeah. running from the guard, trying to get to that parking lot. They got shot in the back. And um, These are unarmed students. Oh, yeah. Protesting. Oh, yeah. Shot dead. Shot dead. Was there ever any repercussion? To no, the- because, of na- because 
There was a class action suit brought by the parents of the students who had been murdered and because martial law had been declared. Yeah, there was no And because the National Guard lied and said there was no order to fire, that it was – yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. We know better. Yeah. To this day, the official reports deny that there was an order to fire. But you don't shoot a cluster of 32 rounds of ammunition within a few seconds unless there was an order to fire. Right. And they were um, – And they, we saw the gesture. It's not just me. Many people saw it. Nobody could prove anything. I mean you probably could prove something but the trial was rigged. Uh, and because it was martial law, they, we didn't have the right to be there. Well, the repercussions or, or the rebound of that in the news – and I was – child when this happened, so I don't have nearly the recollection that you have. But I remember this being a huge backlash that how could you possibly shoot students? It was a disgrace. It was a disgrace. Well, I mean, I I was 19 and it qualifies, I think... I had a nervous breakdown. I think that's what I had. If somebody could, could define it. Well, the trauma that you The went trauma through. was so hideous because after that, of course, what happened was after the initial freak out, everybody was numb in like a zombie trance and uh, teachers with black armbands with bullhorns started saying, don't move, don't move. We didn't know what they were going to do next, right? We didn't know if it was over. So everybody's just like frightened little rabbits. Like How many quaking. were you in that? In that, I was just laid down on the grass, right but where there I were, was. Were there hundreds of you there? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And mm-hmm. there was nowhere to go. And so I, I did what I was told because I, I felt sick, like I was going to vomit. I couldn't move anyway. And um, we, we were there for God, two, three hours before there was a plan of action where the guard lined up, forming a a corridor to the front of the campus and marched every student through this corridor of guardsmen with their guns and got them off campus. Like we all were forced to leave campus. That day the campus was closed. Boom. For three months that campus was yellow taped off. And I remember, you know, walking home. What had happened was, again, talk about fake news, real fake news. The right-wing media there and the Record Courier newspaper had already told people on the radio and with an early edition that students shot at guardsmen. Yes, I remember this. Yeah. Because in in Indianapolis, they closed a bunch of college campuses. It was like armed students shoot at guardsmen. You know, total lie, total fabrication. Didn't happen. So there were locals deputized by the sheriff that were driving around looking for an excuse to pick off students. You'd see sedans like a Chevy Biscayne go by with a shotgun hanging out of the window. Trying to shoot children. Oh, yeah. And and there was martial law then. Uh, there was curfew, 7 p.m. curfew for the next week. You couldn't be on the streets if you were a student. You you had to be. Were you? Did you go home to your parents at that point? No, no, no. I went. I, I already had an apartment on the uh, west end of town, and I, I went back to my apartment. Uh, there were four apartments, and I knew each of the students in each of them. And as a matter of fact, one of the the student next to me in, in the next apartment was Chris Butler, who ends up forming the waitresses. His good <laughs> friend was Jeffrey Miller. Chris wasn't there, but he by the time I got back, he finds out that Jeffrey's dead. So it, it's just I, – I laid in my apartment for about two or three days. There was nothing – you could just hear people bawling, crying, yeah. moaning. Was there ever an apology? No, not at all. And a lot of murkiness around what happened for a very long time. Absolutely. I mean, until very recently, actually. Yeah, and that was by design. Yeah. I mean, because they have their narrative and, you know, you know the story of those with the 
with the megaphone write history, right? And and they were they were spreading a false narrative from the beginning. And people that were already inclined to hate activist students, that was good enough for them. It's like the Fox News crew. We're not interested in facts here. We got what we want. And I it changed my life. That's that's all I can tell you. Up until then, you know, part of me was like the live and let live hippie philosophy. And I was politically aware and getting more and more angry. But this just took me over to no more Mr. Nice Guy. So your conclusion was what? Well, you know, I was being asked to join the Weathermen and uh, frankly, I was chicken. I mean, at that point, if you were a responsible person that felt something had to be done because the country and democracy was going down the tubes, you'd either have to get radical, join the weathermen, or you'd have to do something very, very creative, very, very subversive, and that's Devo. That was started as a art movement to respond to this. It wasn't even a musical movement. It was a coin that my friend and I, Bob Lewis, my my good academic friend who was probably had a higher IQ than I did, and he was a poet and a philosopher, had taken a lot of the same classes as me. We were friends with a lot of the same professors. We had read the same books, and we started this theory that society wasn't evolving, that this whole idea of progress and domed cities and flying cars, it hadn't happened. The opposite had happened. People were getting dumber. They were buying off on sound bites and demagoguery and that things were falling apart at the seams and we called it de-evolution. And then we contracted that to Devo and I started making Devo art and started – it was really confrontational art. Yeah, I remember your early videos too were very much in this this strain of like almost like art. Well, they were art videos. They were performance art. They were performance art. And we didn't have the name for that then. I mean – that's what it really was. And um, there was a definite message. This thing evolved. Devo evolved before it de-evolved. And after I had this art thing in place, I started going, hey, what would Devo music sound like? So I started trying to make Devo music. But I was in a blues band, 1560-75, the famous numbers band in Kent run by Bob Kidney. And so my Attempts at it were too blues oriented, too too derivative musically. Mm-hmm. The lyrics were there, you know. I had no problem with lyrics being a writer, but that's when I met Mark Mothersbaugh. He was a student who was just a part time student who lived in Akron, who was kind of cherry picking art classes at the university. He didn't participate in campus life or anything, but you'd see like evidence of him having been around like in the halls of the art building and other places he was he was designing really abrasive decals like a guy puking on the moon and you know a cow with huge <laughs> so udders he was like almost a graffiti mindset he kind of had a graffiti mindset yes <laughs> and he was putting these decals on trophy cases like sports cases like football trophies yeah. and stuff subversive <laughs> yeah yeah you know like a nerd that hates jobs. And did that right? delight you when you saw that? Like, well, what I, was it? I love the decals. I thought, oh, God, I, I, I got to meet this guy because I wanted to learn how to make these decals. Because what he was doing, he was silk screening on uh, water release decal paper. And I had been making prints, but I didn't know how to do that. And so I started asking around, and people that knew somebody that knew him got that guy to respond to me. And so then I hung around one night and he came in after hours to an off-campus facility called Davy Dorm where I had a a space to do art down there because I was, uh, at that point, 
a graduate student. And I, I left that part out. I was supposed to be going to the University of Ann Arbor as a graduate student, but I lost my scholarship because after the killings at Kent State, the governors of four states, Michigan and uh, Ohio and Iowa and Pennsylvania, got together and said, any out-of-state student come into our school who has been a member of a, quote, radical group, meaning mm. any anti-war group and certainly SDS, that's it. They're not getting admitted. Forget it. So I lost my scholarship, had to stay in the Akron area with my tail between my legs. But I had enough friends and professors that believed in me that I snuck back into graduate school at Kent State without a, you know, a big resistance. So Mark shows up and he's got hair down to his, like past his belt. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And bottle glasses because he had vision that was so bad that without his glasses, he, he couldn't blind. even walk. And so he looked like a freak, you know, like <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He reminded me of R. Crumb in a way. You yeah, pretty, pretty yeah. R. Crumb, yeah. And he was, um, you know, it wasn't like he was some polished verbal student who had, you know, learned about, you know, art history or philosophy or English literature or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he was native art boy kind of. He was real. Mm-hmm. He was rough. He was real and very shy, very unverbal. But you could tell that he was really, really smart, really quick. And he loved everything I talked about and everything I showed him. He was right there and then he'd give it back to you and one-up you on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we resonated because we, you know, visually we were right there together. And even though our styles were different, we liked all the same things. We hated the same things. He didn't think much of my music, you know, and I didn't think much of his because he was doing progresso rock, like progressive rock, like really busy, crazy, you know, like Emerson Lake and Palmer yeah. and Giant, Gentle Giant and that stuff just, you know, it was wanky to me. So, <laughs> you know, I said, listen, you know, you do art and I do art. That music you're doing is not art. The music I'm doing is not art. Why don't we have the same standard for our music that we do for the visual art, why don't we do something original? And he liked that idea. And so we made some rules up like as soon as it sounds like something that's already out and already on FM radio, no, that's it. Your influences were not musical. Your influences were aesthetic. They were more aesthetic than musical. I mean, he, um, you know, he liked, besides the progresso rock, he liked very strange things, Uh, iconoclastic, modern, classic John Cage? We got into John Cage and we we liked that kind of stuff and we liked Spike Jones. Yeah. <laughs> the real Spike Jones, not right. not the new Spike Jones. So right. you weren't influenced at all by the lead up to 1977 and all the the, the sort of proto punk. Well, we became influenced as, you know, like we liked early Captain Beefheart. Yeah. We loved Kraftwerk when we heard it, but we were kind of apprehensive because it was thought we thought, "Uh-oh, we missed the boat." They're already doing us. Ah, okay. Got <laughs> but they it. weren't really no. doing us because we might have been craft work from the waist up, but we were more, you know, Elvis Presley from the waist down. And that's where rock and roll comes into it because as you get into that genre where you're playing music with a set of drums and a bass, you have to pay attention to stuff that's going on. And yeah. the energy in early punk was tremendous. We were listening to the Ramones. You know, and we were listening to the Clash, and we're listening to Suicide. Yeah, and were Patti you, Smith. Were you gigging in your art space, or were you going out in the world and gigging? We were going out out in the clubs and getting 
getting threatened and um, <laughs> things thrown at us, literally beer bottles, beer cans, yelled at, threatened physically. And I think one of our best triumphs was we got paid to quit by the club owner. We were supposed to do two sets and after we got through the first one, he was so freaked and he had lost so many patrons that he he paid us $50 yeah. not to play the second set <laughs> and to go. And we were like, this is great. Good PR. We all went yeah. out to a restaurant. You know, $50 was a lot then. Right. You know? We all went out to a restaurant and had burgers. And uh, I, other than that triumph, um, again, the subversive nature, I was always uh, – misrepresenting who we were on purpose. I'd pretend to be our manager. I I got us a gig as a cover band to play at this uh, WHK Halloween party. WHK was a big FM station in Cleveland and they had every year a huge Halloween party where all the cool rock and roll cognoscenti of that world came together and it was a costume party and they had tanks of nitrous oxide up in the balcony for the VIPs. So people are dressed as Frankenstein, Wolfman. <laughs> the girls are all dressed as prostitutes, of course. You know, of the, course. the cliches. <laughs> you know, and we come out and go. Here's one by Bad Company, and we play Be Stiff, and people are like, "What the hell? It's not Bad Company. What the fuck?" You know. <laughs> by the third, by the third song, they're going, "You fuckers, you're wankers. You know, you fucking go home." So we start right into Jocko Homo, which we. Yeah. Just learned to play. And we we started doing Jocko Homo and we literally guys in their costumes jump on stage, you know, Frankenstein and the Wolfman beating the shit out of are you. Are like throwing the mic stands <laughs> down, pulling the, the uh guitar chords out of the amps. And so we stop, we we run off stage, we go backstage. Our roadies try to stop them from destroying the equipment, and we sneak off to Captain Frank's on the pier that was this terrible, you know, junky seafood place that everybody thought was the cat's meow. And we, you know, sat there and ate, ate breaded shrimp and breaded this and that. And and then we went back dressed in our street clothes, you know, got changed in the van and came in the front door like we were just party goers. And because the, the main act was Sun Ra. Oh my God. <laughs> Sun Ra? Sun Ra. Wow. That's amazing. And, and so we sat oh my there, God. and all these people are stoned and on nitrous oxide, and Sun Ra starts playing, and he just does this jam called 25 Years Till the 21st Century, because it's 1975, right? And starts with all these, you know, chants and drums and. Yeah. Tribal. Yeah. Yeah. And we're wow. like, this is great. And by this time, the place is clearing out. They hate him too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they never got their cover band. Then we, we got better and better at playing and we were writing songs fast then, you know, we were. Were you a quasi-manager or the manager? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you that's were getting I, the gigs, getting them booked, right. getting places to play yeah. at. I remember seeing you in that band and thinking, you didn't look like you belonged in the band. <laughs> you had this sort of, you just have a very kind of a all-American face, <laughs> yeah. right? And so it's like the the style. I was surprised to to understand in my young life that you created a lot of the style, yeah. a lot of the crazy. Yeah, life. the whole stage presence, the costumes, the uh, a lot of the 
quote choreography, you know, yeah. the the moves we decided to do. When did you start to grow and to in in headcount and having an organization around you to 77. 77. What happened in 77 is we got good and the word was getting around and I went to New York posing as the manager in a navy blue uh, V-neck sweater and white shirt wow. and, and Very navy upscale. blue corduroy <laughs> pants and a short haircut and a black briefcase with a three-quarter inch tape of our first movie that we did with Chuck Statler, um, The Truth About Devolution, and uh, our self-produced single that we had pressed at Queen City Records in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. That was Chuckahoma on one side, Mongoloid on the other, and Xeroxes of Band pictures and, you know, a true Devo bio that I wrote that wasn't true at all. That was the whole point. So, you know, and, and business cards. Everything was worked out non-purpose. Like, we will do this. We won't do that. We're not going to answer these kind of questions. We're going to say this. You know, I had all the talking points on purpose yeah. and why. Wasn't going to be like we're gonna, not going to talk about our favorite color or our personal life or any of that. On stage, it was the same thing. Nobody's going to just move for no reason or go – to their amp and and drink some you know whiskey from a cup. None of that's going to happen. We're either like moving intentionally or between songs we completely stop. You know, and the whole thing was worked out and rehearsed and rehearsed. And were you the driving force behind that? Yeah. Oh yeah. You were. The, I'm the one that you, found the yellow suits and created that. And you were the with the cinch belts. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you also created like the videos yeah. especially I remember being yeah. a young person like 16 and seeing them and I was scared by them well yeah they were supposed to be scary, They're scary because scary and a, funny it was a nightmare of American culture that's of. right exactly what it was on purpose we were we were skewering that culture we had come from you know we were going after that 50s mom and apple pie thing and twisting it and I, you know, I didn't direct the first one because I didn't know what directing was. I mean, in a way, I was directing because I wrote it and planned it. Created the but roles. But I thought, well, I always thought a director would, had to had to be the guy shooting it. I didn't understand yet even that there was director of photography and then there was a director. You know, I would soon learn about all this. That's why by the time we started making actual music videos and not that ten minute film, I directed them. Because I'd learned to do storyboards and oftentimes Mark would help me. I'd fill out all the stage direction and camera angles and everything in each of the panels and then he was great at drawing. And so if it said, you know, low angle, medium close up, you know, Mark does this, he'd draw himself doing it. Yeah. You know? And it was great because then we worked with Chuck as a producer and and as a shooter, as a, as a cameraman. Mm -hmm. And we had this like – Scorsese in his early days, he had his company of players and his people and do it yourself and low budget. And we were just going, you know, if we had ideas, we just did them. You didn't have to get permission. You didn't have to pass it through a committee. We were doing it. How many so, were you at this point? Well, what was the we, universe of? Well, we had that. Well, I mean, we had the band that right. became the band. So in 77, well, in 76, for sure. At the beginning of 76, we had, you know, Bob Mothersbaugh, my brother, Bob Casale, Mark and I, and Alan Myers. That's that's the real the Devo. Band. And that we had that. By early 77, we're really 
good. I mean, by my own horn-blowing estimation, we have done the hard work and practiced and practiced and practiced. So that's why I go to New York trying to get us into CBGBs and Maxis because now I want to break into the scene. And we'd been reading all about, you know, television and the talking heads. Mm-hmm. And Patty Smith, I think, we're missing out. We're we're here, you know, in the hinterlands. Yeah, we got to get there. It's a seven-and-a-half-hour drive. It's no big deal. Right. right. And Chris Stein of Blindy, who I'd met when they opened for Iggy Pop on his tour, the Idiot Tour, where David Bowie was playing keyboards. You know, I'd gone to see them with Bob Mothersbaugh and our friend Susan Amasaro and the girl from Chai Pig, Susan Schmidt. There was a local band, a girl band in Akron, Chai Pig. They were really cool. And she knew Jimmy Destry from Blondie. So we we got in, we got to talk to Blondie, and I talked to Chris, and he was very nice to me. And um, he told me, oh, if you're going to New York to try to book anything, you better go see Alan Betrock at the New York Rocker because that was like the hip free magazine, you know, that that was like the staff out in L.A. or something more current like L.A. Weekly. Yeah. It was like the L.A. Weekly of New York at the time. And I did go see Alan Betrock and I showed him the video and played him the single and he actually wrote it up. Wow. And he helped me get in to see Hilly Crystal and we as soon as we got that book, then I went straight over to Max's and said, in April, we're playing uh, CBGBs. Maybe you want to listen to this. You know, It was like, OK. He didn't want to miss out. Like, oh, you're playing CBGBs? OK. And so we had both you know, on successive nights, Max's and then – I mean CBGBs, then Max's. And it, again, very confrontational because the kind of house band of CBGBs was the Dead Boys. Mm-hmm. They had been adopted by Hilly. And the Dead Boys, guess where they came from? Akron and Cleveland. (laughs) And they hated us because they thought we were conceptual wankers, you know, like socias. um, So you're now – you're like 26 or 27 Right. Yeah. Now now, now I'm 27. And you're making money. Now you guys are making money. Not really. We're not making money. (laughs) But you're acting at this point as the – as a music writer, a performer and the manager and the the front team, you know, to go out and get booked. Right. A not lot, for, right. but not for money. <laughs> well, just because something had to be done, you know, like this has to get done, and nobody else was going to do it. But I was the guy. The, you, I was the field marshal. I was the believer. I had the vision. You know, here's what's going to happen. I could see it. I knew what we had to do. I believed in it, and that's all I was trying to do is anything that would make that happen. The same thing Chuck and I would talk about making films for a long time, but we never did. And then finally, we make a film and it gets put in the Ann Arbor Film Festival, that 10-minute film. Funny thing is, it won a prize for best comedy short. And it toured at all the independent theaters with the Ann Arbor Film Festival package that used to go around like out here in LA would have been the Fox Theater where you'd see this. And that brought to our attention uh, was uh, Kip Cohen, A&M Records. He saw the 10-minute film. And he wanted to track Devo down. And my good friend John Zabrucki, who's also friends with Ron Rothstein, that's how I met John, uh, he had come out here and he started a fantastic props company, most artistic sci-fi I'll props say, company, modern props. And he he knew Kip Cohen through a guy named Paul Zaka. So he gave Paul all of my contact information and more tapes to listen to. And uh, right after we came back from Max's in April, Kip Cohen calls up. And says, I want you out here. I'm the guy that signed the tubes. I want you out here. So he offered us like something like two or three thousand dollars and a free place to stay at the Oakwood Garden Apartments in um, Burbank. And 
a showcase gig at the Starwood Theater, which was competition for the whiskey. And, you know, we had already made a commitment to go back to New York in May and play Max's two nights. And so after that, we started practicing, upping our game a little more and left in late June and drove across the country in a green van and um, my brother's Datsun and uh, showcased it for Kip Cohen at, at Starwood uh, theater and got promptly rejected. <laughs> After all that. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible because he came late. You know, we, we're waiting for him. We're waiting for him. We go on stage. We don't see him. Somewhere in the middle of the set, somebody nudges me and he's up in the balcony at the Starwood. We can see him because he's stuck out. He had like surfer blonde hair. He was wearing like white linen sandals and shorts. <laughs> he was like preppy. Everything we yeah. hated, right? <laughs> We're these guys, skinny guys with black shirts, black pants, short haircuts. He's this groovy guy. Yeah. So <laughs> groovy guy. And when we're done with the set, he's gone. But of course, he calls me at the Oakwood Garden Apartments on the weekend and says, gotta come in Monday morning. Come on, guys. So we drive over to A&M Records and meet him that following Monday. And it, his offices were like rattan furniture with the kind of Hawaiian leaf prints on the cushions and, you know, Dracaena oblongata plants and, <laughs> you know, wicker. So and it's like, oh, my God. He goes, sit down, guys, sit down. Caught your set. I go, yeah, what happened? He goes, hey, I'm a busy guy. I'm sorry. I had to leave. And I go, well, what'd you think? And he goes, well, let me tell you. And it just sounded bad from that point on. But he, he stands up and he goes, and this shows you this town and how hideous <laughs> You could march seven teenage girls in here naked, okay? And, I mean, they're all pretty. But, you know, one's got a mole. One's got a funny nose. Another one's got a flat butt. I guess what I'm trying to say is you're not my kind of girl. And I just wanted to kill him. And everybody's like (laughs) sick, like sick inside and like stunned because it's so disgusting. This The mentality is so hideous. We're not there at all. We're not those kind of guys, right? And (laughs) – it's just disgusting, you know? And he goes, but I'll tell you what, you know, you came all the way out here. You got the apartment for the next two and a half weeks anyway. Go back to Oakwood Garden Apartments, hang out in the jacuzzi. It's a great jacuzzi, isn't it? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, get laid. It's always parties there. And, you know, when you go back home, you'll chalk it off to experience. You'll tell all your friends back in Ohio about your time in L.A. And I get in the parking lot and I go, fuck, fuck this Fuck. We're not going anywhere. We're not fucking going anywhere, you know. And Alan Myers goes, "Well, maybe we don't deserve a record deal." And I go, "Fuck <laughs> you," you know. And so, oh, so what God. I did was I immediately that day I go see David Knight at the Starwood. He's the promoter there. Turns out he's the guy that was connected with Eddie Nash. You know the murders that took place. The film called Wonderland yeah. about about the porn star yes. Holmes and the yeah. murders and Eddie Nash, the the coke dealer. Well, his partner was David Knight. Didn't know that at the time. That's how the Starwood was being funded with Blow. Wow. And so he goes, you know, the crowd really liked you guys. I'll have you back. Sure, I'll, I'll have you back. And he goes, uh, in fact, you – you won't even have to open for Clown anymore. We had to open for a heavy metal band named Clown. He goes, I, I'm going to put you on with and he named some local punky act because he realized, okay, we're getting this crowd now, right, because of this newspaper that Steve Samioff did. And um, everybody's, everybody's already in this – in a few days, they've heard about Devo. 
It's like the words on the street. And he already knows it. And the other band wants to play with us. And so this time when we play, the place is packed out. And who shows up? Tony Basil with Dean Stockwell and Iggy Pop. Wow. Because a tape that Susan Massaro had left with Iggy and Bowie back when we went to see them with Blondie opening, right? Either the one I left or the one she left. Iggy actually listens to and he flips out and he tells Bowie about it because Bowie didn't listen to any of those Mm -hmm. tapes, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, Iggy tells the story that Bowie would tell him, you know, there'd be baskets of tapes backstage with all these hopefuls. And he'd go, listen to those and tell me if there's anything that isn't shit. You know, and he really did in the meantime, in those months between March and now July. And they all come backstage and they're flipped out by our act. We love Iggy. Iggy loves us, even though it's totally different. He invites us out to his place in Malibu where he's writing his next record. Mm-hmm. And Tony's a choreographer, right, originally? Yeah, Tony and Tony says – that's Tony backstage goes, so uh, who does your choreography? Yeah. And I'm just like – you know, I feel like Wayne's World because I'm looking at her and I knew her from Esquire magazine when she did the Follies Bergere and there was these fantastic photo spreads of her like some kind of like Rita Marino, you know, like the, yeah. the red gown and the headdress and the dancing and everything. She's a goddess. And, and she, she she was so sexy it scared me. You know, it was like – and she she that night, she's punked out. She's got black Toreador pants, black open-toed heels, a gold lame vest and no blouse. Just with one fastener here with the vest in a real like a leather, like very theatrical looking hat because she's famous for her hats. And you're like humana humana. Yeah. (laughs) And and when she says, who does your choreography? And we never thought of it as choreography. You know, it was part of the art thing. But they, you know, somebody starts laughing and I think Bob Mothersbaugh points and he goes, he does. And she goes, oh, she starts coming over and being very, you know, cat like and asking me all these questions. And invites me like to come to her place in Topanga and talk more about it. <laughs> oh, you have such a cute smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, well, right now. well, you can guess what happened because she'd already decided that night that's what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. What an auspicious beginning! She she told me later, you know, I didn't I didn't know you were as old as you were because we looked from the Midwest. We looked a lot younger than we were, and Tony was only going for you know young boys, very young boys. And How old were you? Well, at that point, yeah, I'm like two weeks away from something? being thirty. Oh, two! Oh my God, you yeah. Were but so when old. when you became famous, you looked like you were about twenty one years old, right? And you were what, like thirty two, probably, right? Right. Yeah. And and everybody in the band, you know, they're between four years younger than me and two years younger than me, and everybody looked like they were still. Mm-hmm. in college. Mm-hmm. What uh, was the financial relationship between you and the band members? Were you all equal? Yeah. The dollar the, came in, you split it? Right. Anything that didn't have to do with writer's royalties, we formed a publishing company, so we published the songs together. When you perform on an album together, those album royalties are shared because you were the performers. Mm-hmm. The publisher gets half of every dollar that comes in and we were the publishing company to make it like – because everybody had put in so much of their – heart and soul into this. You couldn't have found other drummers or guitar players to do what these guys were doing because the brother thing gave you a shorthand. Right. You know what I mean? You you couldn't yeah, you ask a serious guitar your, player. Right. You had two brothers right, in your band. Exactly. Two groups of brothers. And you couldn't you couldn't ask any serious guitar player back then to do what we were doing. They they would be, you know, offended because the parts were so weird. <laughs> 
that they wouldn't want to play those parts. But so everybody contributed, even if they didn't write songs, they got the aesthetic. And here they all are willing to do these ridiculous moves, wear these costumes, act a certain way, you know, cut their hair a certain way. And they're there. They're right there, 100 percent all in. So it's only fair that you form a publishing company mm-hmm. together. That was me. Again, the politics of it. That was me. Because songwriting is where the most money comes from uh, eventually if you have a hit. So that's where the individual would get individually rewarded beyond being part of Devo is the songwriters. And Mark and I wrote all the songs. So I, I didn't want there to be such a disparity between us and the rest of the band that the rest of the band could be in destitute and we'd be fine. Right. So that's the way it was set up from the beginning on purpose. Wow. And how long did you guys stay together as a band? Well, <laughs> yeah, together we, in quotation marks. You know, we were really a serious band from 1975 all the way through 1986. Those five guys mm-hmm. were eleven years of not being years of, together, yeah. working yes. together, writing together, yeah. living together. Then Alan quit. Alan quit in nineteen eighty six, and he quit because Mark was so enamored to the Fairlight and drum machines that he felt he right. felt useless. He felt disrespected. Right? Mm-hmm. He couldn't. I mean, Alan was one of the most incredible drummers I have ever heard in my life, and among the drum community, among people like you know Dave Grohl and Josh Freeze and. Others, they all cite him as the guy. They couldn't even believe how precise he was. Where did he go on to do? He got involved with a band with his girlfriend, some whacked band called Babushka. I mean, nothing good ever happened. Then he just became an electrician and was installing high-end sound systems in the homes of, you know, film producers and rock stars. And and he just wanted nothing to do with Devo because he just felt like this is bullshit. You know, and, you know, frankly, I agree. It's like when the music sounded like machines but wasn't, that was like James Brown, right? right? That was, The precision is what was amazing because it was human. You know, years later after Whippet, when suddenly ad agencies are all using rock songs after they didn't want anything to do with that forever, it just became a hip thing in the 90s. People wanted to do Whippet all the time and they always wanted parodies, Right. Mm-hmm. And us having the Dada mentality that we did, we said, well, we'll let you do a parody if we do it. Right. Right. Because we really want it to be a parody. <laughs> It'll be our voices. And people are going, what? Is that fucking Devo? <laughs> like, because most bands wouldn't be caught dead doing a parody for a commercial. But we thought it was so Dada, so ridiculous that we wanted it to be a really good parody. And, and you could get paid. And, for and it. so we went back to our original tracks. And for this one commercial, we needed to beat map the song and we beat mapped the drum track to whip it. And Alan only deviated two beats per minute from the beginning to the end of the song somewhere in the middle near the bridge and came right back to the same one in the end. That was it. I mean, we didn't have any click tracks back then. We were playing and that was him laying down a drum track in 1980. That's how precise he was. Anybody can tell you that's insane because you couldn't even – you couldn't hear two BPM difference unless I'd made a tape splice and made it obvious. Alan quitting was a a huge blow. What happened after that? We got the guy from Sparks, David Kendrick, to come in and play. And he's good, but he didn't have Alan's power and Alan's taste. And uh, we did two records with David on Enigma Records after we left Warner Brothers in 1986 and we did – Two records for Enigma, which was a label on Capitol Records. And they, you know, that was with mixed results. 
And then you were like around 1990. Well, 1990, you know, Mark Mothersbaugh didn't want to do anything. He mm-hmm. didn't. He was he was withholding cooperation. In other words, the songs being written weren't the way we used to write as a team. Mm-hmm. He would just come in with something, and it was a kind of a take it or leave it thing. It was mm-hmm. more autocratic. Like here, you know, I program these machines. Here's the, here's the song. You know, here's it's funny how here's, success and fame impact some people, isn't it? Yeah. You just kind of went back, though, into your artistic roots and yeah. became a director, right? Right. I I started uh, – I had actually started directing for other bands even before uh, the David Kendrick period. But uh, yeah, then it kicked in full blast after that. And I, I directed at least, I don't know, 60 music videos and around 1996 – it segued into commercials. I started directing a lot of TV commercials, and I really lucked out because in the in the beginning, this seems to always happen to me. It's all the beginning's always the best. Instead of being the beginning where it's going to go uphill, it all devolves from the beginning. <laughs> I because I was approached by these two Swedish guys who ended up forming one of the greatest agencies ever called Mother. Yeah. But they worked at the time for um, that big agency out of Minneapolis that was very. Alan? Fallon, McElliott, and they were their star creatives, and they came to me with a nine-spot Miller Lite campaign. So, like, my first commercials were national Miller Lite commercials that were Dada humor and made for Devo. I mean, that's why they sought me out, because they wanted stuff that had the sensibility of Whip It, of the -hmm. the video Whip It. They loved it. You have had a very unintentional career. Yeah. Just sort of happened. Yeah, all of it seems like that because like Devo wasn't going to be a band that played on stage and toured. Right. Devo was supposed to be an art concept where we believed in all the propaganda at the time that video discs, Pioneer, Laserdisc, these big video discs were the future. And they made it sound like that in all the magazines. It was all about to happen. And so we thought, this is great. We're going to make short music-driven films. We're going to put out a collection of them so that there's a thread running through it. We'll put out one a year and they'll show it in theaters. And and it was political in a way, right? Yeah. Because yeah. of all you had gone through before. Right. Right. My my lyrics were a lot of times fairly overtly – I mean freedom of choice and beautiful worlds. You were very prescient at a time where you were such a young guy. I mean you were a baby when all of this started happening and you were clearly so – I mean this sort of fell into your – this wasn't your path and yet you made it your path and then you owned it. And, you <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean I, I just think it's because of the fluke of time and place of Kent State – of that period, that period in the culture and the killings and then Bob Lewis and the professors like that were there that were so tremendous like Al, uh, uh, Richard Myers. He had he was a one-man film department that was bringing in all the art films out of New York and L.A. and yeah. showing them. I mean he was a smart guy and he was a filmmaker in, in his own right. But he was bringing in films by the Kuchar brothers. He brought in Putney Swope. Yeah. He brought in Pink Flamingos. And so we were – we were on the vanguard. We knew anything that any hipster in New York City knew yeah. or anybody in L.A. knew. We had the same – we were feeding off the same stuff and it was driving every decision I made. That plus you know, my background of being analytical and politicized from a blue-collar angle and the war, then those two things kind of melded. You Did know? your parents ever see this? Did your parents understand? Well, of course, that, that happened much later. You know, they, my father was you know, considered me an embarrassment. You know, he had to like try to justify <laughs> me to his friends at work. You know, and same thing with my mother. But then suddenly 
by the time 1980 rolls around and we're on every TV show and there's a hit on the radio, it's like, oh, yeah, my son. Right. Because you were like preposterous and then you were like onto something. Right. So they actually came to a show in Cleveland when we were doing the new traditionalist tours with the fast food Greek temple that all came apart and became an industrial platform with the treadmills that were all programmed and choreographed. Remember that. They saw this whole big production. And, you know, we had that down because we had practiced with it for six weeks with a crew of like, you know, 15 people that were running all those things from off stage for us. And uh, because we our first gig was Radio City Music Hall. Wow. So wow. it had to be good. And that whole set was placed on that stage that comes up. Yeah, it's based on the um, technology they use on aircraft carriers. And the whole stage came up with us on it and the treadmills running. Wow. Yeah, that must have been remarkable to see. Let's talk about today. What are you doing now? Begging for work. Um, but you you got into architecture too, right? Like, well, yeah. I mean, I, I um I've always been a closet architect. No, but a friend of mine's a restoration architect who's won some awards for restoring uh, Neutra houses and Schindler houses. He's a mid-century wow. modern expert. He owned 24 acres in Napa Valley, and he's putting this never-built Mies van der Rohe house up. He went to Mies van der Rohe's grandson who owns the rights to the state and the plans of the never-built house and got the right. Wow. So it's a replica, of, not a replica, it's a realization because you'll see what he would have done had he been able to do it. And that will be where you come to taste my wine. I'm a total wino. <laughs> I just am a full wino. And I read about that about you and your life. It's so interesting. I mean, that is it, what a But you haven't skill. had my wine, right? I haven't had your wine, but I would love to have your wine. Oh, and I, I am a full wino. I mean, I okay. love wine. I'm it very... makes a lot of sense given your rational and artistic tendencies because it's inside both <laughs> winemaking, right? Well, I always, you know, like you said, I'm, I guess I'm a wino uh, in the <laughs> sense that once I tasted good wine, there was no turning There's back. There's no turning back. And then I just got to know more and more and more. And once again, because of being in the right time at the right place, once we got signed to Warner Brothers, moved to California in 1978, it was the year that the food revolution in America centered in L.A. and San Francisco really exploded. So while there was nothing in the past except like steakhouses and, you know, I mean really bad ones with wedge salads and canned vegetables. And then then Alice Waters came along. Alice Waters was up there. Michael McCarthy and Kim McCarthy. Michael McCarthy here, uh, Bruce Martyr at West Beach Cafe, Wolfgang Puck at Spago. This was all within a year and a half of me moving out here. It exploded. Jeremiah Tower, Alice Waters up in San Francisco, the Zuni Cafe. I got to go to every one of these places and be turned on like, you know, I had only eaten crap in Ohio. Like, again, fish sticks, macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, overcooked rump roast, mashed potatoes. Now I was understanding what food could be and what should be. And these were people championing local produce, local growers, fresh ingredients, seasonal ingredients, and California winemakers who had never been respected until that point. That was when that famous, I think the movie is called Bottle Shock. It's It's a true story. That's when California wine won the French competition in Paris, right? (laughs) And so all these young restaurateurs who weren't stars yet and weren't, you know, moguls like Wolfgang Puck became, they were championing the local winemakers in Northern California and bringing their wines into the restaurant when fancy restaurants only had, you know, French wine and Italian wine. Right. 
But the California wines were fantastic, and yeah. they were a bargain. I love California wines. I'm yeah. a total California palate. Right. I prefer California wines to French well, wines. We, and, and it makes sense. It makes sense because of you're here with the terroir and the yeah. way we eat and the climate. They, they, they fit the food. Now, you got married. I did. For the first time. The first time. When you were? 65. 65. Yeah, I didn't expect to do that. Very strange. You know, I thought I was going to get married in 1985. I had a serious girlfriend of seven and a half years that had been through the whole Devo explosion and deterioration, you know, the wave. First you go up and then you go down. And she had been there through all the insanity, the fame, and, you know, the lavish socializing, the snorting, you know. <laughs> yeah, those were the days. The fun period. I always think those were the days. You know, the and, days, and hanging friends. out with a lot of pretty well-known celebrities. and, and uh, But, of course, there was, you know— there was polyamorous activities going on, which wasn't uncommon then. It no. just seemed to be in the air and you're young air. and just hormones are driving your life. Well, those but also were the days of quaaludes, <laughs> well, it, it, which the government you know, took off the market. But those were the days of the quaaludes. So there oh, yeah, quaaludes. A lot of polyamorous existences were occurring under those. But it was also it was a sexy time. Yeah, and very. You're successful. You're hanging out with a bunch of successful people that are having a good time. A lot of them really good looking and everybody in L.A. like precociously ready to screw. I mean really. It was a fantastic time. Yeah. I was a little – I'm younger than you guys are but I remember watching those days and it was fantastic. But, you know, we were trying to be open. And the creativity yeah. that was it in wasn't, the air. Yeah, it wasn't like – So did that ultimately – was that ultimately the demise of your relationship? Well, it was like – yeah, I mean, you know, it was like we got to quit this, you know. I'm not into this anymore. It's just got to be you and me. And I go, okay, okay, I'm uh, – yes, I love you. It's going to be good old monogamy. I can do it. I want to have children. Yes, we're going to have children. So we set a date, October 27th, 1985, which was about seven months in the future because we wanted to plan a really great wedding. And that was the death knoll. Uh, it was like about six weeks into that, it was like, you know, I think we should go talk to a therapist about what's happened in the past. Uh-huh. Like, oh, really? <laughs> Gee, okay. And, and so then it was left to me to find one and I find this guy. Oh, my God. He was a Jungian guy. He was a psychiatrist that could prescribe medication and he uh, worked out of his house in Westwood and he had a vanity plate said head doctor, head doctor on Jesus. it. Yeah. And he was highly recommended by all these flaky Hollywood celebrities. And he was really smart. And uh, I'll just say his name was Dr. Frederick and I won't say his last name. And he was, you know, a real character. The first thing he does after about two weeks into this sessions is goes, you know, Gerald, I think it'd be better if I saw Luann separately and you separately because there's different narratives going on here, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just about money. He just wants to, like, make me pay twice as much, right? Well, one day I get mixed up on what my therapy time is. Oh, my God. This guy was an ex-tennis pro. Oh, Jesus who, Christ. He, he required knee surgery, so he, that was the end of his career there. And he had a, a big tennis court next to his house, right, connected on his property. And I pull up on the street and park and start walking towards his house, and I hear tennis action. You know, I'm hearing a tennis game, and I'm hearing laughter, and then I'm hearing something that sounds like, Luann, <laughs> they're playing tennis and having a big time out there. Oh, my. <laughs> Holy crap. 
Yeah. See, serendipity. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's so it's well, you know. And that was it's right out of that book Force Majeure. Where, yeah. You know, I'm, <laughs> yeah. It is. I'm oh you know, I'm the chump. That's so funny. I'm Pan and I'm the chump. And that's the end of Louis. No, that wasn't the end. That was that was the end of him and then she, you know, backed off and agreed, Oh yeah, we can. but then she um about another month and a half later when we're designing the invitations and stuff, she pulled the plug. She pulled the plug on the whole thing. And it took you and, 25 years to find the person that you're married to. Well, you know what's funny is after that, I was so – again, I felt that was a second nervous breakdown after Kent State, right? Mm-hmm. This is 15 years later and I felt just the same. Ruined, destroyed. Rug pull. Yeah, rug pull. Yeah. Hooked up to the car battery. And uh, yeah, I couldn't process. I couldn't get over it. I really couldn't get over it. And of course, you know, we had this, at that point, this whole mutual group of friends, right? right? A whole social network of people where some of them take sides or some of them try to make sure that if she's there, you're not. And if I'm there, she's not coming. And, you know, ugliness. And then, you know, of course, what happens is that fails. I go to a big art opening at Gagosian, and here she is with Michael Thompson, the surf pro from Gotcha, who started a, a, a surfwear company. <laughs> oh, uh, it was just, you know, it was nasty. It was such a treat to hear about Jerry's life story up till this point. And next time we'll continue with part two of our interview with him. In it, he will share his life after Devo, his love of food and wine, and how he was at the forefront of a food revolution that began in California. We'll find out how Jerry learned about wine, winemaking, and starting his own wine label, the 50 by 50. So join us on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 